pros and the no's start with Lowe's, because Lowe's has the fixtures and the savings to get the job done right. Working on a big bath project? Now you can get up to 35% off select bath faucets, and you can even save up to 20% on select toilets. Plus, order what you need online and pick it up in-store. See Lowe'sForPros.com for details. So, pro, now that you know, start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 3-1 while supplies last. Selection varies by location, U.S. only. Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont and Associates. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review, is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news and topics. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. We were a little early. We we didn't forget to fix our clocks, did we, Bob? <laughs> I was just going to blame exactly that. <laughs> no, actually, they changed it a couple years ago, and I've been up in arms ever since. That's right. I know. My wife said to me this morning, I can't believe they changed the clocks. It should wait till April, because look at how dark it is. Nobody wanted to get up there. <laughs> the same, a similar conversation. Is it really? I said, yeah, honey, it is. That's why they do it. It gives us more time later in the day. Oh, I would much rather have the lighter later than, than be dark. You know, it was so nice last night. It was like 6 o'clock and it was still light out. <laughs> yes, it was. It's, spring is coming, man. 50 degrees this week. I'm fired up. I don't care if it goes down to negative 10 next week. I get a little taste of it this week and I'm good to go. Just to whet I my hear. appetite. I I'm not digging you. the pool out yet, but it's good to go. Well, you know, close <laughs> enough. Wait till it's 55. There we go. Yeah, that's right. You've got to have standards. <laughs> well, uh, before we get going, I just want to make a couple announcements. First of all, uh, I want to thank our sponsors. Today's show is sponsored by Paychex. Um, you know, and one thing I want to say, people hear podcasters talking about um, sponsorships and affiliates and, and recommending of products and services and that sort of thing. And the one thing that I just will not do on this podcast or on any of the other videos or, or shows that we have, I'm not going to promote a company that I either don't know anything about or don't use because that's just disingenuous. So anyone that we have asked to have a relationship with, like Paychex, um, we use them and I recommend them. So anybody that, that, that sponsors the show, it's not just for the you know few measly cents you get for uh, you know any sort of affiliate marketing. It's because we believe in the product. And Paychex is one of those companies. I've been using Paychex for our law firm um, since I, I started the firm. And they've been very, very good, very responsive. They make it easy to handle payroll. Um, and if you go over to our website, utlradio.com, and you scroll down to the sponsors, there is a little box where if you sign up through the site, you get a free month of payroll processing free. So um, I would check that out. We do something, Bob, that's pretty cool. Instead of having to pay paychecks the full amount, 
we have them run payroll, they call in the numbers, and we manually process the checks, and it makes it such a reasonable fee. It's great. So they oh, handle- oh, okay. They do a little differently, yeah. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention is we talked last time about changes to the UTL radio site, and those changes have been made. So if you go to the site, you're going to find a new page called Ask Your Question. And it, you can use this page for this show. It's primarily meant for the legal Q&A, which is on Tuesday mornings. But if you've got a question or a comment and you know, you've, you're listening to this show, not live, but, but um, you've downloaded it through iTunes or something, and you have a question about a topic, if you go to the Ask a Question tab, you're going to see the ability to start recording your question directly on the site. You don't need anything. As long as your computer has a microphone, you know, an internal, you don't need anything at all. Uh, as long as there is some sort of internal microphone, you're going to click start recording and you're going to have a minute and a half to record a question or comment. And it's like leaving a voicemail. But the beauty of it is, is that it goes directly to us. So we see it as it comes in. And then for the live legal Q&A, we're going to be able to play your question on air and then answer it. So that's a really cool function. So that's over at utlradio.com on the Ask Your Question. And if you look at the uh, the homepage, the special events, you're going to see a link to it there just because it's brand new. So we wanted to make sure that everybody sees it. Um, so That's a that great out. feature because I, I'm one of those guys that if I don't ask it now and interrupt you, I'm not going to. You can do it at yeah. any time. Yeah, so that's the nice thing about it. If, you, if you've downloaded this and you're listening to it you know, at home, and you say, oh, I'd like more information about this, or I've got a question. Instead of mm-hmm. saying, I'll tomorrow, which exactly what you're saying never happens, just go on the site, <laughs> click the button, ask your question, and there you go. So it's a nice feature. So, all right, moving along. Now, if you want to talk about uh, a week in news, there's been a lot of stuff going on oh, this week. Fun week. Fun yeah. week this week, and more to come, I'll tell you what. Um, you know, and some things just don't go away. I know... We haven't talked about it yet because it just happened Friday night. There was the, the shooting in Wisconsin, Madison, of yep. another unarmed individual, and so there's all sorts of, of fallout from that. But going back, I don't want to say the original problem because it's, it's been an ongoing problem, but the, the, the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back, Ferguson, Missouri, um, the Department of Justice finally getting – I don't know what I call it. They're, they're, they're pooping a group, I suppose, on what they want to do moving forward. Uh, Ferguson Mayor James Knowles said the city must do better to address racism after a stunning DOJ report revealed a range of abuses committed against African-American residents by his city's police force. Knowles outlined a number of steps the city is taking to comply with the DOJ recommendations and reform its force, which was found in the DOJ report to have engaged in systemic racism against the city's African-American residents. He also said one of the three city workers who the DOG, DOJ report identified as having sent racist emails has been fired, and the two other are under investigation. However, a source close to the investigation telling CNN that the other two individuals' jobs will not survive the investigation. Uh, two of the individuals are officers, and one is an employee of the department. The Justice Department, I'm not sure if everyone's aware, have been looking at this and completed a long review. It took months of the case and resulted uh, in the results on Wednesday. The report cites unlawful bias against stereotypes, uh, uh, excuse me, unlawful bias against and stereotypes about African-Americans and point to a number of violations of constitutional rights. 
violations um, all citywide. Attorney General Eric Holder said in a, it is a highly toxic environment existing between the Ferguson police officers and the city's African-American residents, even before Officer Darren Wilson shot and killed Michael Brown last year. He said it's difficult to imagine how a single tragic incident set off the city of Ferguson like a powder keg. He pointed to the excessive use of force overwhelmingly against African-American residents, noting that only African-Americans were bit by police dogs and that also no alternative explanation except racial bias exists to explain it. Holder also said Ferguson's police department violated residents' First Amendment rights to record the activities of officers, regularly conducted illegal searches, and unlawfully detained citizens and competed with each other to, quote-unquote, see who could issue the largest number of citations in a single stop. Interesting goal. He said the city's municipal courts and local government relies on the police force to serve essentially as a collection agency. A lot of strong, strong accusations in this report. Um, In a press conference later on Wednesday, see. Lewis County Prosecutor Robert McCullough said the Justice Department decision to not press federal charges against Wilson was not surprising given the evidence. And that's a separate case other than this. Obviously, the Wilson case sparked it. Now, they listed a host of, I think this article was three or four pages long, and they listed a host of examples, which I'm not going to go through. I'm just going to talk about some of the, the, the six most striking examples cited in the 102-page Justice Department report. Number one, unlawful arrest has long-term consequences. This is, again, just one of the examples. Um, in the summer of 2012, a 32-year-old African-American was cooling off in his car after a basketball game in a public park. Ferguson police officer demanded that the man give up his social security number and identification before accusing him of being a pedophile and ordering the man out of his car. When the officer asked to search the man's car, the 32-year-old refused, invoking his constitutional right. The response the officer arrested the man at gunpoint, slapped him with eight charges, including not wearing a seatbelt, <laughs> despite the fact he was just sitting in a parked car. The officer also cited him for making a false declaration because he gave his name as Mike instead of Michael. The man told, told us that because of the charges, told CNN, that he lost his job as a contractor with the federal government that he held for years, the report says. Now, number two, people were more like sources of revenue. The Justice Department also revealed that driving the uneven hand of the law enforcement in Ferguson was the city's emphasis on revenue generation. City officials repeatedly pushed the Ferguson Police Department to increase city revenue through ticketing, resulting in disproportionate targeting of African-Americans. African-Americans were disproportionately targeted by those practices, ticketed and cited for minor violations at a higher rate than white residents. And African-Americans were almost exclusively on the receiving end of some of the violations. They accounted for 95% of, quote-unquote, one of the the charges as a matter of walking in the roadway, those charges, and 94% of failure to comply charges, for example. The racist emails that we mentioned earlier. Again, I'm not going to go through the emails, but there's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six emails cited in the report of Ferguson police officers and city court officials that just happened to disproportionately target African-Americans in the emails. Their investigation has not revealed any indication that any officer or court clerk engaged in these communications were ever disciplined, the report reads. All of those who sent emails are current Ferguson city officials. And if you didn't pay that parking ticket, number four, here's your arrest warrant. The Justice Department probe revealed racial discrimination by the police department, but also by the municipal court. City court issued more than 9,000 arrest warrants stemming from minor violations like parking and traffic tickets. City wasn't just focused on revenue through tickets, but the fines associated with late payment of fines and additional arrest fees. The investigator spoke with one woman who was still dealing with the repercussions of a 2007 parking violation. 
More than seven years later, she's now been arrested twice because of the parking violation and has already paid $550 in fees stemming from the parking violation. She still owes $541 on a ticket that originally amounted to a $151 fine. Uh, The use of force is another example cited in the report. The police department recorded 151 instances of officers using force documents that provide a litany of evidence in excessive use of force. Federal investigation based on those reports revealed that that officers are quick to escalate encounters with subjects they perceive to be disobeying their orders or arrests. I'm assuming they mean in the African-American community. They have come to rely heavily on ECWs or tasers, which where less force or no force at all would do, the report explains. The officers' use of force in some cases had no basis in law, while others were simply punitive and retaliatory in the report's opinion. In addition, the FPD records suggest a tendency to use unnecessary force against vulnerable groups such as people with mental health conditions or cognitive disabilities and juvenile students. And then finally, dogs. Every single time Ferguson police officers released a dog to bite an individual involved, an African-American was the perpetrator or accused perpetrator, according to the the, uh, department's records. Some shocking stats based on that whole report was less than 8% of Ferguson police officers are African-American. African-Americans accounted for 90% of officers' use of force. African-Americans weren't uh, just more likely to be stopped, but more likely to be cited and arrested regardless of the reason for the stop. And they were more likely to receive multiple citations during a single incident. African-American drivers were twice as likely as white drivers to be searched during traffic stops, but 26% less likely to be found in possession of contraband. That's all I have to say about that. That's a lot going on there, Peter. What yeah. the heck is happening down there? Is this, you know, when you look at this and one, you think, hey, yeah, this is really, really bad. But on the other hand, I tend to say, because, you know, they go through a lot of examples, but I'm, 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 a, um, I'm always a skeptic. And, and, and I ask myself, okay, we well, say this happened, but how many times did it actually warrant it? And they don't really go through that. They just say, this happens. So I'm, I'm, right. I'm, a, I'm not doubtful that something is wrong there, but I'm doubting that it's as bad as they paint, and that's just me. You know, I, I, think, I think a lot of things are at play. First of all, I mean, that, that whole episode was so um, so just, just sort of um, transform, transforming. Um, that's not the right word, but it was just such a, a dramatic scene of events, and I think that it, it really screamed for some sort of justice. So I think now, in an effort to try to go back and shut the barn door that's already been blown off the hinges, you know, now they're going to come back and they're going to implement very, very strict changes. They're going to find things um, that maybe it's borderline. Um, to make an example, to show that, look, we are doing something, because this was a slap in the face, I think, to um, most of of government officials, the Department of Justice, who just really didn't handle this the right way. So I think that's part of it. But the other part of it is that there's an overwhelming, I mean, if, if you believe this report, there is an overwhelming um, group of, of, of documents and evidence and emails that really point to a systematic approach where they are targeting people. And, you know, it's not that it doesn't happen. It, years ago, it happened in New Jersey with the state police. And it, it does happen. And I don't know if it's if they're targeting African Americans because it is a community where there are 
a large population of African Americans. I don't know if they're targeting them because they're perceived to be uh, of lower income and it's easy to get away with because there's there's no arguing the point that police oftentimes will pick on, and that's that's putting it lightly, people who appear to be lower income because there's less chance that somebody lower income is going to file a, a charge or a claim against them. So I don't know. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of officers, some of whom are super professional and others who will say that there are colleagues amongst them that like to go out and kind of take out their frustrations on on certain people. And they target people that are perceived to be weaker. I don't know. I think it's yeah. it's really hard to look at this and everything that was laid out in this report and say that something's not going on down there. Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah, it's obvious that something is wrong. How much, like you say, how much of it is... I don't want to say true because I'm sure it is all true, but how much of it is the systemic problem? And, and I would have to, I'm always an 80-20 kind of guy, so it, it's, it's obvious. But there, there was one thing that actually somebody brought up this weekend and told me, you know, that really kind of opened my eyes. And it was interesting because of the Selma uh, situation, you know, in 50 years since the Selma um, mm-hmm. march. Nobody, and, and you look at media today and there's a lot of outcry about media. Man, they only focus on what is going to get the biggest draw. And it's absolutely true. But in the same token, back in Selma, no one, or I shouldn't say no one, it was not widely reported of an African-American struggle in, in, in the day until Selma. Yeah. And yeah. that really, and, and that's, that's really kind of, that, that, that when, when the individual told me, I said, wow, yeah, that's a really, really good point. Yeah. And... And, and we had talked about it, gosh, we hope that the whole, you know, we understand people want to riot. We understand people are unhappy. We hope that it wasn't just something that was going to bring no change. And I really, I very rarely commend this administration on anything, uh, just, just because of my own political leanings and what I believe. But I think this is one thing that they have gotten right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think you made a comment about the media. And I think that the media has great deal of responsibility, and I, I think that they fail the public 90% of the time because sure. it's, it's all about ratings and money, and it's about what they can you know, uh, sensationalize, what they can drum up more advertising dollars for. That's what it is. I mean, nobody wants to sit and watch a peaceful demonstration. What fun is that? They want to see cars on fire. They want to see looting. And I think that you know, when the media directs the attention to that behavior it becomes the focus and i think you lose perspective and and you no longer see that this might be microcosmic event of something that is a larger scale and i they're i think they're hurting i think they're hurting the com- the country simply because it is money producing but that's the way everybody in the country thinks what is going to make me the most money? What's going to bring in the most money regardless of what I do? Sure. And I, think, I think it's a shame um, because, you know, the media, you, you go to them, you, you go to the news, and what do you get? You know, let's, let's watch people set cars on fire. Why? I don't know. I have a and problem. It, I think it fuels a, fuels a downward spiral as well. It's, it's, it's one of those things where the protesters – know that they're going to get attention and the more attention they get the more further their cause will will go along and 
and so it's they feed off each other, and yeah, it's, it's it, not good. Sure. No, and you know one thing um, in the beginning of this of this report that you point out um, about the First Amendment rights, where they were not allowing people to videotape officers and arrests, and that's interesting. Uh, I have a video on the YouTube channel that addresses that issue. Is it illegal to record a police stop? So watch the video. But the the answer to this, with respect to your First Amendment rights, is that you are entitled to videotape or photograph the police so long as you're not interfering with an investigation. So uh, oftentimes, you know, you, you see this happening regardless of your skin color. Cops don't like to be videotaped. Um, sure. And if you see you videotaping them, they will come over and they will try to take your camera away. They'll try to take your, you know, your your memory card. They'll cite you. They'll give you a ticket because they don't want to be filmed. But you do have a right under the First Amendment and under various state case laws that say go ahead and do it. So as long as you're not disturbing the peace or interfering with the investigation, go ahead and do it. And, and to that point, I'm glad you asked that because that was one of my follow-up questions was the First Amendment right mentioned. But the also uh, the, the article also mentioned the same individual's refusing a search what grounds do people have on the ability to refuse a search and what grounds do they have the police have as well to enforce a search well the the constitution provides protection for unlawful search and seizure under the fourth amendment so um Mm -hmm. if there is probable cause it's relatively easy for a police officer to get a swarm but a lot of times things happen in the moment. So if you pull someone over and in plain view, you see your paraphernalia in the backseat. Um, based upon that open and obvious you know, condition, the police have the ability to ask you to get out and to search your car. Now, there are times when there's no probable cause. There's nothing. There's not even a reasonable suspicion. There's just a belief that I don't like this person. I'm going to hassle them. So now open your trunk. And do you have to open your trunk? Well, here's here's my opinion on this. And I say this with a lot of things. If you want to go to jail and defend yourself and ultimately be vindicated, then don't open your trunk. But if <laughs> you've got nothing to hide, you're better off just complying because there's there you know you're going to be on your way a lot faster. I've been I've been pulled over before for minor things like a tail light out. And then they'll want to see this and that. And then they'll ask questions. It's like, well, why? But, you know, as annoyed as I get when they're doing it, I'll just answer them. Because it's just not worth my time and effort to fight them. Exactly. That's what the ACL is so, <laughs> for, right? Yeah. I, I don't you can always the, offer up a P number. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, oh, I'm sorry, was that my court identification? <laughs> Yeah. Rule of thumb that I is listen, unless it's something that you really feel is a violation of your rights. For example, um, you know, you call the police because uh the neighbor is causing disturbance and then they go to see the neighbor and the neighbor says, Oh, this person's crazy and the police believe the neighbor and not you because this actually happened in a case I had. And then they come to your house and they want to search your house. Well, wait, why do you want to search my house? What for? At that point, I become nervous because I don't know if they're going to go in there and plant something, and maybe I just watch too much TV. But at that 
point, <laughs> I'd say go get a search warrant because there's no yeah, reason. Yeah. You know, but traffic stops, routine stops. I mean, it's happened before where you've had somebody walking down the street and there'll be a, a crime reported and the police have reasonable suspicion and they'll ask to do a pat down. You know, what do you want to do? Do you want to fight them, go to jail, and then get a lawyer? Or do you want to just let them? You know, so that that's up to you. But path of least resistance is the way I go. Absolutely. Yeah, especially if I have nothing to hide. Yeah. Um, exactly. In a follow-up, kind of to add to this whole Ferguson, Missouri situation, Michael Brown's family is going to file a civil lawsuit. Shortly, the attorney says, according to CNN, family of Michael Brown will file a civil wrongful death lawsuit in the case very shortly, uh, attorney Anthony Gray said on Thursday. Neither he, he nor attorney Daryl Parks would say exactly when the suit would be filed, they said they disagreed with the grand jury's and the justice, excuse me, and the Justice Department's decision not to charge Wilson in the shooting. They have accepted Wilson's self-defense. Parks told reporters, "We do not accept his self-defense." A word of the lawsuit, obviously coming a day after the Justice Department determination uh, in the uh, in the case against Wilson in Brown's death. They did not find sufficient evidence, but found in a separate investigation all the things we just talked about. Uh, in November, a grand jury cleared Wilson, if you don't remember, in an uncharacteristic move in grand jury proceedings. The prosecutor released all the evidence that was considered. Gray said that the civil lawsuit will, will rely on pretty much that same evidence, but will also be uh, cast just a little bit differently. The jury in the civil lawsuit will be asked to make a determination based on a lower burden of proof by a preponderance of evidence rather than beyond a reasonable doubt, Parks said. Summing up the crux of the Browns family case, Parks said, there were other alternatives available to Wilson. He did not have to kill Michael Brown. Um, we've talked about this before, and you know, I, I was probably the, the, the best example of I wasn't guilty, according to a criminal court, but I'm paying through the nose O.J. Simpson, yeah. um, or at least when he's able to. Is this going to be any different, or is it that easy to prove um, negligence or... Uh, wrongful death, what's going to happen here? Well, there, there definitely is a reduced burden of proof. And all you've got to do is show that the overwhelming evidence supports negligence you know, on, the, on, on behalf of the officer. But here's the thing. So we just talked at length about the Department of Justice report. Who hasn't heard some of that report? And what sure. person is going to be able to sit on a jury and not have that information going through the back of their mind when they're sitting down looking at the evidence concerning the shooting. I know that, that it would be very difficult even for me to sit there and not to think about all of the extrinsic evidence, even though a judge is going to say you're not going to or you're not supposed to consider anything that you've seen on TV, heard on the news. I mean, come on, that's <laughs> really, really hard. And, you know, the difference between O.J. Simpson and, and, and um, the situation that we have here is that Wilson is nobody. O.J. Simpson, I think, because I still believe that O.J. Simpson is guilty, um, I think O.J. Simpson <laughs> should have been convicted. And it was so funny that you bring him up because the other day I was getting ready to get rid of my winter clothing. I can't stand it anymore. And I was going through some pile of gloves, and I found an old pair of leather gloves that I knew fit me last year, right? I've gained weight, but not that much. 
and they had been wet. And as I put them on and I couldn't fit them, I said to myself, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. So You must donate just, it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> In this case, yes. So, I mean, I think that, that OJ um, had the benefit of being a celebrity and a very likable guy. Uh, it still didn't do anything on the civil case um, because there was – I think there was this idea that he's guilty of, of something, and we're going to have to punish him for something. So let's just find it, and then we'll meet that lower burden of proof. Wilson's case is different because I think that it's going to be very easy – for them to say that he was negligent. Because on a jury, when you're deciding negligence, you're not deciding whether or not somebody loses their job or somebody goes to jail. You're not saying somebody needs to be put to death. You're saying somebody needs to pay money. Now, interestingly, there is a good chance that this police department belongs to some insurance policy. Either they're covered under an individual policy there's some sort of self-insured retention, or they're part of what they call a joint insurance fund where multiple municipalities contribute. So chances are that most or at least some of any award by a jury is going to come out of insurance proceeds. So what do you care sitting on a jury if an insurance company has to pay money to the Michael Brown family? You know, and I think that that's some of the components that go into play in a civil case. It's about money, not about life or death, or not about putting somebody in jail. Will this definitely see the inside of a courtroom? Oh, I think I think so. I think so because I think that um, even if Wilson is so adamant that he's done nothing wrong, I mean, you, you can't even really point to what happened during the grand jury investigation because it's a different animal altogether. So I don't think he, he has much to stand on by going back and saying, well, the, the grand jury acquitted me. They, you know, they didn't sure. think that there was anything. That, you know, it doesn't work that way. Um, I think that if it's an insurance company, they're going to have to analyze, and there's going to be a lot of effort on the attorney's parts who are defending the insurance company claim. What do we do? Because we know that the odds are stacked against us. But depending upon the carrier, they might roll the dice. I mean, this thing could actually go to trial if they believe <laughs> that. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see that. But these are the yeah, things yeah. people don't understand and don't see when you're talking about a lawsuit. It's not about, in the grand scheme of things, was he negligent? It was about risk and what an insurance company is going to have to pay out. Should they settle now? What will you know the family of, the, of, of Michael Brown settle for, if anything? Do they want to make an example out of him? So there's so much at play that it's very difficult to pinpoint what's going to happen because you, you're dealing with the Brown family. Are they happy to take 50000 Do they want 100000 Do they want a million? Or do they not care about the money, but they want to put this guy on the stand for everyone to see? So yeah, yeah, I think, I think the, 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 they have a, a larger axe to grind than money. Yeah, I think so too. And, but we, and you know, one of the we'll, things actually that, that – the, the, the big difference between OJ and, and Michael Brown, uh, or in Darren Wilson, I should say, is we know Darren Wilson killed Michael Brown. Yeah. We don't yeah. know that OJ killed Nicole Brown and, and, and Ron Goldman. We know what happened. We know the end game here. We know what happened. But is the negligence going to come from the lead up to 
the altercation because I know that the, the evidence showed that Michael Brown did have, or they believe he did have his hand on or near Officer Wilson's gun. Right. Right. So does the struggle for the gun that may or may not have happened, does it even matter because of how the situation elevated to that point? Yeah. And that's and where the negligence lies. Yeah, and when you look at the element that you're going to have to, to really analyze, um, first of all, I mean, look, the, the negligence elements are, are quite easy to go through. One, you need to owe a duty of care to somebody. And without argument, a police officer owes a duty of care to the general public, including Michael Brown. So now, number two, did he breach that duty of care? And that's going to be the key question that a jury is going to focus on, because the other elements are, was the breach of duty the proximate cause of the injury or damages, and were there damages? So we know there's damages because he died. If you can prove that uh, he acted in an unreasonable manner, that he breached his duty of care, then the proximate cause is almost automatic because of the death. But what, you know, is, was it reasonable? And how do you look at that? How do you analyze that? Well, you apply it, the reasonable person standard and you say, would an officer, an experienced officer in the same situation have done the same thing? And the plaintiffs are going to put on experts who are going to say, no, reasonable police officer who was properly trained would not have pulled his gun and fired. He would have done A, B, or C. That's what's going to happen. And then Wilson's going to come in with his own uh, expert and going to say, no, this is what they're trained to do. This is why he reacted this way. So it's going to hinge on that one question. Did he be, be uh, sadly interesting to watch? Yeah. Yep. So um, courthousenews.com kind of uh, will stick in this whole area because there's always a, always a question of self-defense when it comes to uh, – what you're doing in different situations. Well, they've said in Massachusetts that it's okay to bear arms, but not stun guns. The Massachusetts court says second amendment does not protect the right to carry a stun gun. The Massachusetts Supreme judicial court ruled Jamie Catano brought the issue to the attention of the court in challenging his 2011 arrest in a supermarket parking lot for possession of a stun gun. Police responding to a report of a possible shoplifting incident had discovered, um, basically uh, that woman sitting in, in, in a vehicle and consented to a search of her purse, though Catano said she needed the stun gun to protect herself from an abusive ex-boyfriend, she was arrested. After Catano failed to have the charge against her dismissed under the Second Amendment, claiming a ban on electrical weapons and basically is unconstitutional, a judge found her guilty. Too bad, he said. Affirming on direct appellate review, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court said Catano failed to show that a stun gun is the type of weapon contemplated in 1789 as being protected by the Second Amendment. There's always that discussion about what they intended back when they wrote the amendment. The decision focuses on whether or not a stun gun is designed as a weapon, like firearms, daggers, stilettos, and brass knuckles, or designed as a tool but used as a weapon, like a pocket knife, a razor, a hammer, wrenches, and cutting tools. Citing the statutory difference, or excuse me, definition, the court said it is clear that a stun gun belongs to the first category, a weapon. The record demonstrates no evidence or argument that its purpose is for anything other than bodily assault and defense, Justice Francis Spina wrote for the court. 
while modern handguns are protected under the Second Amendment because their basic function has not changed since 1789, Spina said stun guns fall outside the protection of the Second Amendment because they are not in common use. They were not in common use at the time of the enacted of the Second Amendment, and are both dangerous per se at common law and unusual. So basically, a stun gun, although it really does the same thing a weapon does, it's not their basic function, or it's not associated to the basic function that was defined in 1789. Is that right? I mean, a gun does nothing but what a gun does. A stun gun does nothing but what a stun gun does. There's no delineation in what can or can't be done. Did they get this right? I don't know. I think that what concerns me is, if you want to go back to the original definition, the original definition is muskets and musket balls. You know, it's now, now, what does this mean for some of this new tech that's coming out? Um, like we had Robert McNamara on the show a couple of months ago with his okay. smart gun technology. So are you going to say now that if you modify a handgun and you put a, a device on it to perhaps pr- protect you know, children from using it, it's a, it's a smart sensor gun, a smart gun, does that, is that constituted under the, or, or considered under the Second Amendment? Did the drafters of the Constitution, the drafters of the Second Amendment, contemplate some radio frequency device. So now does that change the function of the gun? I mean, I know it's a stretch, but my point is is that if you don't adapt with these laws, you could very easily carve out exceptions for everything. So if you don't want to give people the right to carry a stun gun, it's got to be defined differently because I think that well, if the stun gun was shaped, shaped like a pistol, would that make a difference? Is it, <laughs> is it its shape? What is it? Is it that it doesn't launch a projectile? I mean, I think that there's more to look at, but, you know, it is what it is. I think that what worries me is the future moving forward. Well, what about a gun that emits some sort of... Um, different type of burst that's not a bullet. I mean, we see that, that the government, at least, is working on prototypes for all sorts of weapons that might emit electromagnetic pulses. Is that a gun? Well, even a laser. Right. A laser. Made of lasers that will melt metal from distance. Right. So does Han Solo not have the right to carry a blaster under the Second Amendment? I don't know. <laughs> not a lightsaber. That would be a dagger, stiletto, or brass knuckles. Or a switchblade, yeah. But brass knuckles, more, yeah. more closely, yes. Everybody still has a pair of brass knuckles. Yeah, yeah that, that was always that was the, the interesting reference that I found in that opinion. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I guess you know, and that's the thing is, like you say, the adaptation. Where is that line drawn, or the interpretation against what was perceived as the weapon or the the defensive weapon? At the time the Second Amendment was written, what if tomorrow, and it's not going to happen, thank goodness, all handguns or all all bullets were 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 banned <laughs> to to keep things ripped from the headlines, um, and all of a sudden there was no way to fire a weapon. Yeah. Now you have no guns that actually can function in the same capacity as what was originally referred to, but with a stun gun you still have the same. Basic function, I would say, it is designed for self-defense or yeah. offensive maneuvering. And so I'm, I'm, I was 
interested that they they pulled away from that and like you say kind of the way I look at it more narrowly defined it than I expected them to yeah yeah and you know what does this does this stem or or run off into pepper spray you know the woman was oh. caring for protection what what happens now we're not allowed to protect ourselves i you know i worry about that right right yeah no it's it's, it's it we'll we'll use the slippery slope as everyone loves yeah. yeah slippery slopes exist because it's too late it's at the point at which you recognize the slippery slope exists you're already saying i told you so yep you are sliding so fast you can't <laughs> stop yourself like chef shay oh we'll wrap it's a big christmas vacation yeah, exactly. Wrap up the weapons talk, and uh, I appreciate Peter referencing uh, the homeboys here in Michigan, not far from my house, Planet Fitness, uh, about 20, 25 miles, revoking a woman's membership after transgender uh, was complained about. And if you knew where I live, 25 miles, not that far from civilization. CNN, a Michigan woman lost her Planet Fitness membership over the inappropriate manner in which she complained about a transgender woman and I, that, I don't know if it's transgender man or transgender woman. I, I, that's where I always get confused. At what point do you identify transgender and what do you put behind it as a descriptive adjective? In the locker room, a gym spokesman has said, Yvette Cormier's membership was not canceled for simply raising the issue, as we all welcome feedback from our members, said McCall Gosselin, director of public relations at Planet Fitness Corporate. Rather, it was the manner in which she expressed her concerns that club management felt was inappropriate, resulting in the cancellation, Gosselin said. Cormier stands by her actions in a case that has drawn attention to transgender rights. She says, this is all new to me. I don't go out to specifically bash a transgender person that day, or I didn't go out to specifically do it that day. I was taken aback by the situation, she told CNN. This is about me and how I felt unsafe. I should feel safe in there. She's referring to the locker room. The mother of two says she was acting out of concern for her safety and the privacy of other female gym members when she raised the issue on Saturday, February 28th. She went to the front desk after someone who looked like a man entered the woman's locker room while she was changing. She said, I wanted to know why there was a man in the woman's locker room, she told CNN. He looked like a man, and that's what stopped me in my tracks. She said the front desk employee told her about Planet Fitness's no-judgment policy, which allows people to use changing rooms based on their sincere self-reported gender identity. Unsatisfied with that, she said she called Planet Fitness's corporate headquarters, heard the same thing. She said that if something that should be something that they pointed out to her when she signed up. If you have male parts, you don't need to be in the woman's locker room. I don't care what you are. I don't care if you're gay, lesbian, transgender, or transvestite. I am uncomfortable with you as a male in my locker room, in my restroom. She returned to the gym Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday to get the word out to other women that they let men in the women's locker room, she said. Every day, she says, that I said, just so you know, there's a man in, that they allow in this locker room, and they don't tell you that when you sign up. The next day, she found out that her membership had been canceled. Cormier said, or Cormier, Cormier excuse me, said uh, Planet Fitness does, needs to do a better job of informing members of its policy of allowing members to use whichever locker room corresponds with their gender identity, which refers to a person's psychological identification as a man, woman, or another gender. The manner in which this member expressed her concerns about the policy exhibited behavior that management at the Midland Clubs deemed inappropriate and disruptive to other members, which is a violation of the membership agreement, and as a result, her membership was canceled, 
Planet Fitness Goslins said in a statement. Planet Fitness is committed to creating a non-intimidating, welcoming environment for our members. Our gender identity non-discrimination policy states that members and guests may use all gym facilities based on their sincere, self-reported gender identity. LGBT advocates applauded the Planet Fitness policy, saying it was necessary to ensure the safety and privacy of transgender individuals. Keep that statement in mind. Planet Fitness has the right to allow members to use whichever locker room corresponds with their gender identity, Allison Gill says, senior legislative counsel for the Human Rights Campaign. Uh, she told that to M Live, one of the papers in the area. Even though gender identity is not a protected class under Michigan anti-discrimination laws, transgender individuals still have the right to use whichever bathroom they feel comfortable using, attorney Jay Kaplan with the ACLU of Michigan's LGBT project told M Live. A transgender woman would be much more at risk for her safety if she had to use the men's bathroom, he said. Cormier does not see it that way, but does agree with LGBT advocates on one potential solution, unisex single stall bathrooms. Apparently, my vision on this, Peter, one group has rights, one does not. Yeah, you know what? This is so beyond, I mean, this is the, you know, LGBT, the, the, they're applauding this. But, but this is not about protecting transgender rights. This is about Planet Fitness and their really screwed up policies. You know, Planet Fit, this isn't the first time. A few years ago, they had a guy arrested because he grunted, because he violated their anti-grunting <laughs> policy. And the police came <laughs> and forcefully removed him from the gym. You know, we've all seen those ads, right, with the uh, the Planet Fitness um, they've got mm-hmm. the bodybuilder, and, and they're stereotyping him as stupid and, um, you know, just, just a, a beefy moron, and they say, you're not welcome here, and they've got the guy escorting him out. And, the, and their whole marketing ploy is we want the average person that has no desire to go to a gym because they're intimidated. We want them. So they've taken this a step too far because I guess it was like, like 2000. Eight. Let me see. I have an, an article here from 2000. Looks like uh, 2008. There was an individual that was asked to leave Planet Fitness because her body was too toned. So ah, what, yes, I remember that. Yeah. What they're looking for is they're looking for the couch potatoes to come in and join Planet Fitness. Now, I used to. You, you couldn't tell by looking at me now, but I used to be an athlete in college, and then I went and I did bodybuilding for a while, and I went to a real hardcore bodybuilding gym. And no, it was not female-friendly unless you were a female bodybuilder. And it was, you know, the stereotypical kind of thing. However, um, that sort of transformed into and involved into what New York Sports Club is today. New York Sports Club still has um, a, a, a mix of people. There are overweight people. There are because I go to New York Sports Club, and uh, you know you see a whole array of people. There are some still muscular people, but now what does that mean? Does that mean that if you're overly muscular or overly toned, you don't have a right to be at Planet Fitness? So their policy is good for those underdogs, but not good for people that might be considered to be in better shape. I mean that's this is getting crazy. So I think that people, especially the ACLU, they're going to jump all over this because, right, all this is they, they did the best thing for the communities that we're trying to protect. 
I don't think it's about that. I think that they've got this agenda with this marketing idea and this screwed up policy. If you grunt, I mean, what happens if if you have gas in the middle of a squat? Oh my God! I mean, you'll be <laughs> jail. I mean, just what happens there? It's silly. So if you can look at their policy and see that they're crazy, and at least in my opinion, um, now it sort of diminishes the protection that they're providing for transgenders. The one thing that I can say here is that I, I don't I don't understand it because I'm not part of the community. I do believe everybody as a citizen of, of the planet and of the country has rights, and I do believe that things are evolving, and so we have to evolve to have uh, rights to protect everybody. I do see where someone who is a man becoming a woman, transgender into a woman, might be at risk if they went into a men's bathroom. Um, oh, sure. I, I, I could see that. So in that sense, should there be an alternative for that, that person? Because I can also see where the woman is offended because this person has male parts. And I think that you know you take it a step further and what prevents the pervert from saying, yes, I'm really a woman, going into a woman's locker room simply to satisfy his, his you know, desires? So there's a lot at play here, but she was not told to leave because she complained. She was told to leave because she complained because instead of just, for me, right, I were really offended, I would have quit. I would have left the gym, right. and then I would right. have gone out on a campaign and said, this is why I was forced out. But instead, she went in, and it could even be considered tortious interference with business. Here she is, instead of working out, she's telling everybody why Planet Fitness is no good. Well, why not leave Planet Fitness, go somewhere else, jump on a podcast, and complain about Planet Fitness because of their ridiculous policies? As a matter of fact, I want to take this one step further. I will represent <laughs> bodybuilders who believe that they have been unlawfully prevented from going to Planet Fitness. That's discrimination. That's, it's discrimination. But that's the crazy. I understand the, the idea, but they're not protecting anybody. They're trying to make money, and the niche market that they're appealing to is, and it's really not a small market, it's everybody who's intimidated to go to a gym. So, I mean, I guess they're providing a good service. They're getting people off the couch. But what happens when the couch potato goes to Planet Fitness, becomes in shape? Do they have to leave? All right. You, yeah, uh, I was just going to get to that point. Yeah. There's a line there that, that performance is going to change that. That's right. <laughs> Wait a minute. As soon as you can bench press your body weight, you are out of here. And no grunting. <laughs> I have a friend of mine that is a uh, a world record power lifter, and I can't. He would never. They don't even market to that guy. He what? he uses specially made three hundred pound dumbbells to do bent over rows. He's yep. not going. He doesn't even care about Planet Fitness. He laughs at Planet Fitness. I'm sure, although he's yep. probably pretty overly polite to do that. He wouldn't laugh at it. But he said, "Yeah, it's just not the place for me." And so they're not even marketing to those people. I can't even see. They don't even have the machines. For those individuals that you would generally associate to not wanting to go there. So much ado about nothing. I think their whole marketing plan is. 
Yeah, I, but I think that, you know, ACLU getting all excited about this and the lesbian and gay transgender community, it's not about them. Planet Fitness didn't help you. Planet Fitness helped themselves. So right. don't get behind Planet Fitness. They're not championing your cause. They're protecting their profit. Play mm-hmm. some. Well, I'll tell you one thing that the, the article mentions that I find interesting is that they talk about single stall bathrooms for individuals that may not want to be identified as in transition. So they'll go there. I can only think of the separate be equal. To that. I mean, now yeah. you just, you can't be equal if you're separate. Right. Yeah. So that that's not a solution. I, I don't see that as one, but we'll see yeah. what they do. Maybe we'll end up with a third stall in the, uh, or third, third door at the yeah. locker rooms. Oh, my gosh and golly. You got to love them. Ohio parents suing Amazon. This is something that, uh, you know, kids more and more get more and more access to the things they shouldn't get access to. Ohio parents suing Amazon over a teen's death from caffeine overdose. NewYorkDailyNews.com, the family of a Northeast Ohio high school senior who died of a caffeine overdose last year filed a wrongful death lawsuit on Friday against several companies, including Amazon.com Incorporated, which shipped the supplement. State court lawsuit contends Amazon and six apparently related Arizona-based companies violated Ohio safety laws by manufacturing, distributing, and selling powdered caffeine. Logan Steiner, 18, died in May of a cardiac arrhythmia and seizure due to acute caffeine toxicity shortly before he was set to graduate from high school. Lorraine County Coroner Dr. Stephen Evans said bags of powdered caffeine were found in his bedroom. The lawsuit filed by Steiner's father says the companies promoted, advertised, offered for sale, and sold hard rhino pure caffeine powder on Amazon. It also names as a defendant a classmate who bought the powder and gave some to Steiner. The lawsuit said hard rhino should have labeled the caffeine powder as an over-the-counter stimulant and not as a dietary supplement and inadequately warned of the difficulty in differentiating a safe dose from a lethal dose. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration in December warned of the dangers of consuming powdered pure caffeine, which can have the rough equivalent of 25 cups of coffee in a single teaspoon. Steiner, Steiner family is asking for $25,000 in damages. I would be insulted if I were the dead son and has started a petition asking the FDA to ban the powder. The FDA regulates all forms of caffeine except pure powder form. Go figure. Yeah. What the heck? Well, <laughs> these, all, you know, these parents got a case. Yeah. You know, look, here's the, here's the interesting thing about this. There's a couple interesting facets here. First of all, um, I think that the FDA will ultimately regulate uh, caffeine powder. Already, most of the states have enacted some law. Um, and, and New York's, for example, they give a full explanation. They talk about um, caffeine in its pure powder state is essentially 100% caffeine. And uh, it, while it's commonly thought to be safe and natural, pure caffeine is very powerful. Even small amounts can result in accidental overdoses. Like you said, 25 cups of coffee in a teaspoon and then they go on to say, it is nearly impossible to adequately measure the substance using ordinary kitchen tools, and a small amount can make a big difference. A caffeine overdose can result in rapid or erratic heartbeat, seizures, and in the worst case, death. Once the caffeine hits the bloodstream, it remains in the system for 24 hours, even with medical intervention. So New York State has passed a law, the same as Ohio, the same as New Jersey, that bans the sale of powdered caffeine. Now, 
What's interesting here is that Amazon was only a distributor. They didn't produce the product. They didn't manufacture it. All they did was distribute it. And I think that there is a misconception that people think, well, they didn't manufacture it. Why are they being sued? Do they have any liability? What did they do other than take a product from company A that said, here's what it does. They, ad- they, they advertised it. Let's assume they advertised it accurately. However, the manufacturer told them to advertise it. That is how they listed it on Amazon. Amazon sold it. They're an intermediary, a third party. They're getting the product from A to C. They're B. What is their responsibility? Under strict product liability laws, if you distribute an inherently dangerous product, you are just as responsible in a proportionate amount to the manufacturer. So that is where Amazon is on the hook because if you look at the Ohio law that bans the sale of powdered caffeine and Amazon is distributing powdered caffeine into Ohio or New York or wherever, isn't that per se product liability violation? Isn't that a a per se product liability claim? It's inherently dangerous because the statute tells you it's inherently dangerous. New York statute gives you this big, long explanation about the dangers associated with powdered caffeine. So if you look at that chain of events and you now say, Amazon, your compliance department should have told you that it is illegal to sell powdered caffeine in these states, I think they have liability. This happened a few years ago. I believe they were selling a copy of Mein Kampf in Germany, and Germany banned the sale of that book. And Amazon said, yeah, but we're reaching all over the place. And Germany said, well, you have to watch what you're doing and prevent selling banned or contraband material in our country. And it's the same thing here. So a distributor does have an obligation to look at the laws and be in compliance. So that's where I think Amazon, they'll settle. But Amazon will have some liability sure. here. I'd say it's akin to selling porn to children over the Internet. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because I don't think people think about that element. How is Amazon responsible? They can't really articulate it. Because no, they, they I never would have thought that. Ever would have thought that. Yeah. I would have thought the, the, the crux of the responsibility falls 100% on the manufacturer, not the uh, distributor per se. Yeah. So I'll make them increase my list of people I need to sue. <laughs> Just go buy some powdered caffeine real quick. <laughs> get up the market. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but my, the other thing I know is 25000 bucks. That's it? I think what that is is I don't think that um, the Daily News was able to get a copy of the complaint. And so they oh. know <laughs> in the court that has jurisdiction above $25,000. So it's not in, in okay. the... In the Civil, the, the smaller civil um, uh, court. It's in the the main trial court. So they're just giving you what the bottom number is. They could ah, be okay. a million dollars <laughs> until they get the complaint. They don't know. 
Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I learned something today. <laughs> well, $825,000, a little bit more than that. The Buccaneers cheerleaders won that much in a lawsuit against the team. A group of Tampa Bay Buccaneers cheerleaders reached a settlement with the team, according to the New York Post, netting the pom-pommers $825,000 for gross underpayment. Gross? Really? I don't think so. Uh, Manuchikar, Manuchikar, Pierre Vau, I'll go with that pronunciation, filed a lawsuit last May against the team on behalf of herself and 93 other cheerleaders alleging the Bucks violated federal and state wage laws. Pierre Vau, a registered nurse, lasted less than a year with the team because of the pay frustrations, which included her assertion she was paid less than $2 per hour. The Raymond James Stadium staples allegedly were paid $100 per game but went unpaid for mandatory practices. According to Pierre Val's lawyer, the group was compensated $25 to $50 for corporate-sponsored events but nothing for any other event. The Bucks had to put in at least 40 hours of public appearances at events per year. After the settlement, according to TMZ, each cheerleader will bring home basically just under $6,000. The victory, however, looks to be a precedent-setting one. The Jets... Bengals and Raiders all face similar lawsuits from disgruntled cheerleaders. I will make them happy. They can come over. They will not need to be disgruntled any longer. Um, but uh, this is not uncommon in the sports world. I know um, from working in the sports world myself professionally that the hired help, and I'm not talking about the peanut sellers. I'm talking about me, the guy on the field with the microphone, and don't get paid a whole lot of money. And no. cheerleaders apparently don't either. So, um, no, and it's that, too bad because they make it a ton of money. They do, but I think that you know it's it's this whole uh, the old adage: the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. I think that the and and this this stretches beyond. Um, I think football, baseball, basketball. This is corporate America as well. If you can try to avoid paying somebody, then let's try it. And there's that risk. Sure. To, but analysis. Well, look, if we don't pay 95 cheerleaders what we know they're entitled to, what's the likelihood that they're going to sue us? Now, in this case, it backfired because 800,000. <laughs> now, I guess it's a drop in the bucket when you look at how much money the team is actually generating. But the sure. point is that even on smaller scales, you'll get a smaller or mid-sized business that says, no, I'm not going to pay this, I'm not going to pay that. And then, you know, they get fined by the Department of Labor. Um, and maybe it's a small fine. Maybe it's a couple thousand dollars. But they think to themselves, all right, well, out of all the employees I've ever hired, this one complained, but look at the 10 that didn't. So I made money. And that's the <clears throat> approach. There's no Lost way. Mitigation. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can't tell me that a, a sophisticated business like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did not know that they were underpaying their cheerleaders. No way. Well, and, and it's not like there are going to be fewer people filling the stands if they decide, if the hottest of the hot decide not to show for auditions. As long yeah. as they field 92 women, they're all right. So, yep. you know, and you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yep. And, and I guarantee you there's a whole slew of women that say, well, you know what? I don't care if they don't pay me as much as I think I deserve because the opportunity to be a cheerleader, that's going to be my big break. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sure. I, I, I bet you that there are a majority of women that would do it for free just to get the exposure. Exposure, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so My answer to that is if you haven't been discovered already, chances are you're not going to be. <laughs> That's true. Learn, no, 
Learn it, know it, live it. How are we doing on time? I know we have some uh, commitments today. Why don't, that, we, uh, we, yeah, why don't we do one more because I, I can't pass sure. this one up. This one's too good, and then we'll uh, wrap it up. <laughs> I like the way you think because I thought the same thing. I'm like, that's a pretty good idea. Prostitution ban being called unconstitutional, according to Courthouse News. What you say? Yes, it's true. San Francisco, a prostitute and a man who would like to enjoy her services, sued California on Wednesday, challenging the constitutionality of state laws against private consensual sex, uh, sexual activity as part of a voluntary commercial exchange between adults. That's a definition for you. Plaintiff KLES says she has been licensed to provide sexual activity for hire to consenting adults in Nevada and would like to work in Northern California where she lives. Can't claim her. Plaintiffs CV and GB, JB, excuse me, um, don't get that one backwards, both worked as prostitutes in California and would like to be hired again, but fear criminal prosecution. Plaintiff John Doe, who has a disability, wants to hire a prostitute to engage in his sexual activity consensually, respectfully, and in the privacy of his own residence. The lead plaintiff is San Francisco-based Erotic Services Provider Legal Education and Research Product, SPLURP, uh, an advocacy group. They sued four-county district courts, or excuse me, attorneys, and California Attorney General Kamala Harris, Harris on March 3rd, claiming that prost- prosecuting sex that is part of a voluntary commercial exchange between adults, violates the state and federal constitutions. Now, Eastlerp describes itself as a nonprofit serving erotic service providers, for a change, escorts, and other types of workers in the human sexuality field. The individual plaintiffs say they fear prosecution under California's prostitution and solicitation laws. Soliciting and agreeing to engage in or engaging in prostitution is a misdemeanor in the state. The women plaintiffs say they have been a, have a, abandoned their profession in California for fear of prosecution. KLES, one of the plaintiffs, says that this is a particularly difficult concession for her, as she was licensed to perform identical activities in Nevada. Their claim, inter alia, that criminalizing prostitution discourages safe sex and condom use because prosecutors use condom possession as evidence of prostitution-related offenses. The law unconstitutionally limits a person's right to earn a living in her chosen profession and to maintain certain intimate or private relationships, the plaintiffs say. The claim, they claim that prosecution of prostitution violates the First Amendment's protection of freedom of association. They seek declaratory judgment that California's prostitution statute is unconstitutional and an injunction against its enforcement. I, might, I have a brother who is paralyzed and would absolutely enjoy this particular product. It's been discussed. I'm not kidding. Yeah. We we have talked about it, not him and I, but him and other individuals in my family, and said, you know, gosh, if we wouldn't go to jail, it'd be really nice to be able to buy him a friend. Yep. You so, know, this, this is really an interesting debate because um, – I did a podcast, it was, it was one of our Thursday shows, episode 67, The Pros and Cons of Decriminalization of Prostitution. And it was a really, really heated show because I actually had some uh, lifelong prostitutes on the show. Mm-hmm. And some of them were crazy. I mean, some of them, they'd been out in the street way too long. Some of them were engaged in it in areas of the country that it's more accepted and it was more um, done as a business. But one thing that came out of that discussion, while I personally would not want my 
daughter, if I had one, to be a prostitute. I also have a hard time understanding the criminalization of it. I don't understand. And I don't understand that. I mean, if you go to countries like the Netherlands, Amsterdam, Holland, Canada, right? You know, I think that if you are concerned about safety, if you're concerned about safety of others, the safety of the people that are actually, uh, you know, for the prostitutes, why not make it mainstream? Why not make it a business? Why not make it regulated? Let them get licenses like in other countries. Make them go through mandatory testing. You would keep them safe, everybody else safe. I mean, you'd also generate revenue revenue on the state level. The, the fact is, is that people who are interested in going to a prostitute are not going to be persuaded not to simply because Correct. it is illegal. It's the same thing with marijuana. You know, you're going to tell me that because marijuana is illegal, I'm not going to do it. But you can see how that's shifting throughout the country. So I, I, I don't understand this. Like I said, I am not a pro-prostitution person, but I also don't understand why this is illegal and why it's not regulated and made to be something of a, a more reputable business. Well, and I would have to believe there's two reasons why. One is the health, but you can see, as you mentioned, there are ways to regulate that, and we don't even have to go out of the country to figure that out. They do it in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other one is belief sense. It's like, well, if you allow that, everyone will do it. Well, no, that's, that may be true. Everyone may try it, but some people will starve because they're just not any good at it. Well, there you go. It, there that's, you go. that's cult capitalism, folks, and... The cream rises to the top, pardon the pun, and it is what it is. You know, everyone can't succeed in it. Now, you know what? I I just think it's – when when I did that interview, I really – you know, I kind of went into the interview with one thought in my head. And by the time I was done and talked to people and I had some guests call in, you know, it it sort of made me think about why we do some of the things that we do and and what we're actually protecting. Um, I mean, you look at the porn industry, and that's regulated now, and, and you've got mandatory What's the tests. difference? Right. I don't you – know, it's just hard for me to understand this one um, because if you're concerned about protection for people, you're concerned about safety and health, well, then do something because they're still going to do it anyway. Why right. not exactly regulate? Right. So I think we will uh, we'll leave off with that one because that one is an interesting story. If you're interested in hearing that interview, uh, it's episode 67. I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode so you can hear it. That one was pretty good because uh, uh, some of the, the, the guests were giving me a really hard time, so it's kind of entertaining. <laughs> so check that one out. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so we're on tomorrow at 10 a.m. for the live business and legal Q&A. Please make sure you check out that new page on utlradio.com and record your question. We'll be able to use it live on the air. So I'm excited to to use it and to have people uh, to engage in it. Everybody who leaves a question, if your question is asked on air, you're going to get a free mug. And within the next couple of weeks, we're going to have our T-shirt stock back up, our inventory back up, and we'll give you the choice of either a free mug or a free T-shirt. 
if your question is used on air and if you do it through the Ask Your Question feature on utlradio.com. Again, I want to thank our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Paychex. If you go to the website, utlradio.com, there is a link at the bottom that allows you to get one free month of payroll processing. gives you an opportunity to try them out. And again, we use them. I would not engage in any sort of recommendation of a product or service that I don't actually use. Paychex is a good one, so check that out. Um, we are also making a, a, a schedule up for the Thursday show. Um, we've been replaying episodes, but we're building up a list of, of guests, and I'm hoping that next Thursday, uh, if not this Thursday, but next Thursday, we'll be live with some brand new guests, some brand new topics, and we'll have um, almost the rest of the year booked for that Thursday show. In the meantime, we are going to have to satisfy you on Mondays with um, Week in Review, and then tomorrow with the live legal and business Q&A. That's going to do it Sounds for today. Great. Bob, thanks again for uh, meeting me here at 9 o'clock instead of our regular 10 o'clock time slot, but I do have... Always some, happy to do so. Yeah, I've got some actual court things I've got to do today, so I do appreciate it. <laughs> go back to your real job, eh? I'm going to go back to my real job. <laughs> well, this is, trying to figure uh, out what mine is. Yeah, well, all right. I guess I have to end it, huh? Yeah. I can't stretch it out any longer. i got to go. All right, Bob, thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks uh, to all of you who listen live and to everybody who's going to download this later. Re- remember, make sure you check out that new link, listen to the podcast live, and then go ask your question. I will see you guys tomorrow. Bob and I will be back next week. Thanks, and remember that there's power in understanding the law. morning there was a freshly brewed McCafe coffee. It was made with 100% Arabica beans, yet something was missing. Fear not, in the distance a sausage McMuffin with egg rides toward the sunrise in quest for breakfast. The perfect pair met at McDonald's, and mornings were happy forever after. Right now, get a $1 small coffee and a $2 sausage McMuffin with egg from the $1-2-3 menu. Prices and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Napa know-how. Right now, you can get a $20 prepaid Visa gift card by mail with the purchase of a Napa Legend Premium Battery. Its durability and power make it the obvious choice for people who hate getting stranded by a dead car battery. So pretty much everyone. The Napa Legend Premium Battery and $20 back. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care Centers. Limit two per household while supplies last. Offer ends 228.19.